This week in the mornings we've been looking at a study on Calvinism. Uh, we refer to it as the TULIP Doctrine. Each of those letters in that acronym stand for a different part of this Calvinist theology or Calvinist teaching. Now, as you consider your Christianity this morning, and you think about Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross, did Jesus die for all people or only for a few? And that's the subject of the morning. We're going to talk about limited atonement. Calvinism teaches as it relates to limited atonement that Jesus' death was only for the elect, those that he unconditionally elected as we talked about yesterday. And so we're going to dive into that and see what the Bible says about limited atonement. I'll remind you what Calvinism itself is. Calvinism is not a church or a denomination or a religion of itself. It is a set of doctrines or teachings that have been taken on by many different denominations and non-denominational churches and so on and so forth. And this theology or this set of beliefs, it influences how we view God, how we view ourselves, and ultimately how we view our salvation in Christ. Why study Calvinism? We've talked about this each morning as well. It's important, I think, to remind us. We're studying this topic, for one, because we're instructed in Scripture to test the spirits, to test the doctrines that we hear, to compare them with Scripture, to see if they line up with what the Bible teaches. And so we're going to take a systematic approach, as we've done this week, to these doctrines, and we're going to compare them to the Bible to see if the Bible says or contains those things, as the Bereans did in Acts 17, verse 11, that they search the Scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. And then we also want to be prepared to have a conversation with someone that we may know that believes these Calvinist doctrines, that we want to be able to have a, a uh, conversation that's, that's friendly and that's speaking the truth in love and all those things, but to have the knowledge base to be able to say, hey... Have you thought about this in relation to that? Have you thought about what the Bible teaches about this and some things that we can do in those conversations? We want to be ready for those conversations in our life. We've talked about some of the history of Calvinism and each day, um, starting yesterday, we're we're taking a zoom-in approach on one of the aspects of this history. So uh, we talked about that Calvinism, you may also hear it referred to as Reformed Theology, the Doctrines of Grace, etc. Yesterday we talked about Augustine, who was the first one to actually begin teaching some of these concepts in the 300s. But 1,200 years or so later... We find a man named John Calvin that comes onto the scene during what we would call the Reformation period in history. And he's going to take a lot of these ideas that Augustine introduced. He's going to expound upon them, extrapolate conclusions based on them, and ultimately form what we know and refer to as Calvinism today. And so we do want to zoom in on John Calvin a little bit this morning. And let's talk about a few things related to his life. So John Calvin was from France, born in France, originally did a lot of his ministry in Switzerland. He was born in 1509 to a staunchly Roman Catholic family. He studied theology and law in Paris and Orleans before becoming a pastor in Geneva, Switzerland. Now he was influenced heavily by, of course, Augustine in Augustine's writings, but also by Martin Luther. Now you've probably heard of Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther, a few years before had nailed the 95 theses on the the wall of his church in Germany. Uh, And basically Martin Luther started what we refer to as the Reformation period. And Martin Luther believed the Catholic Church needed to change some things, that it had become corrupt and were teaching things that were unbiblical. And so Martin Luther started this idea of we need to reform the church and change what the church is doing and teaching. 
And he was a little bit before John Calvin. So John Calvin, I think, was eight years old or something when Luther would have nailed those 95 theses on, on that door. And so Calvin grows up and he's hearing this Protestant teaching of Luther and others that's beginning to infiltrate uh, the church and, and Christian ideas. And he's growing up and he's studying theology and he's hearing some of these ideas. And he latches on to this Protestant idea. In 1534, he broke from the Catholic Church. And uh, for a few years, even a little, bit, a little bit before that, he had started working on his own systematic view of Christianity. And he would eventually, in 1536, publish his book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion, which attempted to explain essentially everything about God and the Bible and salvation and do it in his reformed view. Now, there's a reason why I mentioned that Calvinism is, re- is referred to sometimes as reformed theology. It comes out of the Reformation period in history where they were trying to reform the Catholic Church. Now, uh, Luther, uh, not Luther, but Calvin, rather, is going to have some, some back and forth. He goes to Geneva for about three years, Geneva, Switzerland, and is trying to work with the church there. He actually gets uh, kicked out of the city, essentially, by the uh, anti-Protestant uh, group there. And he goes and he, and he pastors and does some work in some other places, but then actually comes back to Geneva three years later. And in 1541, he stays there until he dies. And he begins to rise in prominence as an important spiritual and political leader there. Now, what Calvin did in Geneva, Switzerland, was he used the Protestant principles that he believed in, this Calvinist theology and doctrine, he used it to establish a religious-type government there in Geneva. And in 1555, he was given essentially absolute power or supremacy in that city of Geneva. It was essentially a a religious government, so it served a civil as well as a religious um, uh, uh, purpose and Calvin was essentially at the head of that. He, in some circles, was nicknamed the Pope of Geneva uh, because of the amount of power that he had there in that city. We'll go forward. Geneva would become the center of Protestantism and sent out pastors to the rest of Europe, creating Presbyterianism in Scotland and the Puritan movement in England and the Reformed Church in the Netherlands. And so uh, Calvin and, and Geneva was behind a lot of the spreading of, of his Calvinist doctrine and theology and very purposeful in sending out preachers and, and pastors that were followers of Calvin to different places to, to make sure that this movement spread and continued throughout the world. Now while instituting his Protestant policies, Calvin's government was also punished impiety and dissent against his vision of Christianity. In the first five years of his rule in Geneva, 58 people were executed and 76 were exiled for their religious beliefs. And it's not my intention to, uh, to um, do anything except present the facts of what happened in history regarding John Calvin. I think it's important that we recognize uh, there, there's a dark side to this religious history. And that is that Calvin, with all of that power that he had there in Geneva, was, was very intolerant of any religious ideas that didn't conform to his beliefs of Calvinism. And so there were many people that were put to death or exiled as a result of disagreeing uh, with Calvin's theology. One such case was that of Calvin's longtime acquaintance named Michael uh, Servetus, a, a Spanish physician, scientist, and Bible scholar. Now, Servetus had resisted the Catholic Church... Uh, but was charged with heresy based on a couple of different things. Basically, he rejected the Trinity, which, of course, the, the Catholic Church upheld very strongly, and he rejected infant baptism. Okay? But despite rejecting the Catholic Church, which you would think would have endeared him more to Calvin, uh, he also had some disagreements with Calvin. 
And so uh, Calvin, Servetus comes uh, essentially to Geneva to escape the Catholic Church, but instead of finding refuge, he comes to the church where Calvin is, and Calvin has him arrested. And then in Geneva, they put him on trial, they convict him, and they put him to death for heresy, for his religious beliefs that still didn't line up with Calvin's philosophy. And John Calvin said this, Servetus offers to come hither if it be agreeable to me, but I am unwilling to pledge my word for his safety, for if he shall come, I shall never permit him to depart alive, provided my authority be of any avail. And then we see um, that John Calvin later in another writing says, Servetus, he suffered the penalty due to his heresies, but was it by my will? Certainly his arrogance destroyed him, not less than his impiety. And what crime was it of mine if our counsel at my exhortation, indeed, but in conformity with the opinion of several churches, took vengeance on his execrable uh, blasphemies? I did not say that word right. John Calvin had enough power there to encourage the council there at, at Geneva and essentially to say, despite this guy who has run from the Catholic Church, he still is considered a heretic for not believing the Calvinist doctrine and theology. And so this longtime acquaintance of his who disagreed with him, he had him put to death and encouraged his death. Now, history will record that Calvin recommended a swift death, uh, which many people take to show the, the compassion of John Calvin. Uh, but the council decided to burn Servetus alive at the stake for his heresy um, as a result of Calvin having him arrested and charging him as a heretic. He said, Whosoever shall now contend that it is unjust to put heretics and blasphemers to death, knowingly and willingly incur their guilt. It is not human authority that speaks, it is God who speaks and prescribes a perpetual rule for his church. So as we think about John Calvin, the instigator of this, of this theology that we're talking about this week, and who really put that in a systematic form that, we're, that we've been studying... It's important to recognize the history and recognize who this man was. While there may have been parts of him that certainly were uh, trying to reform the Catholic Church into a closer version of God, um, a lot of the history that we see is him taking power and wanting power and wanting to rise up uh, politically and religiously and then ultimately using that power in relation to, the, to his church, the Protestant church and Reformed church, uh, to put to death and exile those that didn't agree with him. And so as we think about this system of theology and we think about Augustine and the Gnostic influences and pagan influences that brought this in and then some of the history of John Calvin, I hope that gets uh, in our minds a good idea of the reality that just because somebody puts together a piece of work about Christianity or about theology, we need to take a deep dive into it and consider what are the origins, what did they believe, how did they live, and ultimately... Let's go to the scriptures and let's go to the Bible and let's believe what the Bible teaches. And so we're going to do that this morning. I'll remind you our fundamental issue this week is God's sovereignty. Does God meticulously control everything that ever happens or does he give mankind free will in some areas? And we certainly remember that if we say that God is sovereign and therefore he must, we have limited his sovereignty. But if we say God is sovereign and can do whatever he chooses, including giving mankind free will then we're actually upholding his sovereignty in that position. So let's take the L of this tulip doctrine. Let's talk about what is limited atonement. And limited atonement in Calvinism is also referred to as definite atonement or particular redemption. You may hear those terms. It's the belief that Christ died only for the sins of the elect, those predestined by God to salvation, and no atonement was made for the reprobate or those that were not chosen by God. Now, this 
is the one point of these, of these five points that is probably least likely for a Calvinist to stick to. Okay? Because Calvinists recognize that limited atonement is a very, very hard thing to show biblically. Uh, it, it does not have the scriptural support at all that they believe even the other points may have. It does flow out of the logic, right? If mankind is so totally depraved, we can't do anything good or be saved for, or do anything to contribute to our salvation, then it's all on God. God has sovereignly chosen certain people to save and certain people not to save. Well, if he has sovereignly chosen certain people not to save, it wouldn't make sense that Jesus came down to die for everyone, right? If God has sovereignly chosen not to save certain individuals. So what they will teach is that Jesus came down to die only for the chosen of God, only for those that he had unconditionally elected. Now, unfortunately for them, it flows within the logic of the theology, but it does not flow scripturally at all. And we'll show that today. The canons of Dort said, For this was the sovereign counsel and most gracious will and purpose of God the Father, that the quickening and saving efficacy of the most precious death of his Son should extend to all the elect for bestowing upon them alone the gift of justifying faith, thereby to bring them infallibly to salvation. It's the elect alone that receives the gift of Jesus Christ and can be justified. John Piper said, Rather we say that in the cross, God had in view the actual effective redemption of his children from all that would destroy them, including their own belief. And we affirm that when Christ died, particularly for his bride, he did not simply create a possibility or an opportunity for salvation, but really purchased and infallibly infallibly secured for them all that is necessary to get them saved, including the grace of regeneration and the gift of faith. So there's a recognition of opposing viewpoints and doctrines, right, which says that the death of Christ made it possible for all men to be saved, to come to salvation. And John Piper is saying it's, he didn't die so that people could have the opportunity to be saved. He died so that a specific group of individuals could be atoned or have, have their sins atoned for. So let's run through the three primary aspects of this limited atonement doctrine. Jesus atoned for sins through his substitutionary sacrifice. A lot of big words, but basically what they're saying is that Jesus came down to die on the cross to be a substitution for sin. Okay? Uh, John Calvin said, This is our acquittal. The guilt that held us liable for punishment has been transferred to the head of the Son of God. We must, above all, remember this substitution, lest we tremble and remain anxious throughout life, as if God's righteous vengeance, which the Son of God has taken upon himself, still hung over us. Now, we're going to talk more about this, but certainly we recognize that Jesus did come to provide atonement for sin and to be a substitution for our sin. But did he come only for the elect or did he come for everyone? That's kind of the discussion that we want to have today. They'll use verses like 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus is that substitution. He gives us his righteousness. He takes on our sin. It's a substitution. He takes the penalty for us. We get his righteousness. John 1 verse 29, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And so, in this uh, sense, they will say he is the Lamb, he is Jesus who will take away the sin of the world. Now, what they'll do with the world, in a lot of places, you'll see this pretty often, is with the word world or the word all, they will explain away those words to assume that he is talking about only those select group that he, is, that he has chosen. And it absolutely does not make sense scripturally, and we'll see that. But that's the way that they will interpret that, is they'll say that he was referring only to the world of Christians, to those that God has unconditionally elected. 
The Westminster Confession of Faith says, The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up to God, has fully satisfied the justice of his Father and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for those whom the Father has given him. All right, so that's the basic idea of atonement, that Jesus comes down as a substitution for sin. Number two, Jesus' death didn't make men savable. It saved the elect. And that's the Calvinist position. R.C. Sproul said, I don't think we want to believe in a God who is a spectator of the drama of redemption, who sends Christ to die on the cross and then stands there crossing his fingers, hoping that someone will take advantage of it. Our view of God is different than that. Our view is that the plan of redemption was the eternal plan of God, which was perfectly conceived and perfectly executed so that the will of God to save his people is accomplished by the atoning work of Christ. And he makes that sound really good, right? Makes it sound like God would be silly to just send his son Jesus and stand there with his fingers crossed, hoping that someone will take advantage of the atonement. But the reality is, their view is that that atonement only took place for the elect. God didn't make men savable. He didn't give us the opportunity to be saved. But that when Jesus died... He actually atoned and saved the elect, those that God had chosen. They'll use verses like Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. You see the word many in this verse? It's not world, it's not all. And so they'll go to this verse and they'll say, See, he didn't bear the sins of all. He bore the sins of many, less than all. Not everybody's sins, only the elect, and that's what they'll say. Now, we, we pointed out yesterday that there's uh, another verse in Romans chapter 5 and verse 19 where they actually make the opposite argument for the word many, where they'll say by one man's sin, many were made sinners, right? And they'll say that teaches inherited sin. We may have made that on Monday. That that teaches inherited sin and that the many there means all. Everybody became sinners. And we pointed out in that that if that means that all became sinners, then the next phrase, which says, and by one man's obedience, all were made righteous, then it must mean that all are saved by Christ if all were made sinful by Adam. But I'm just pointing out the fact that depending on the verse, they'll either say many means all or many means many. And you can't nail them down on which one is which. They'll just pick the one that's more, more convenient, essentially, for the position they're trying to show. Revelation 5 verse 9, and they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood, uh, by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And so they'll say that many there is referring to the elect of God that comes from every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. Those that God has chosen from across the world that are a part of his elect, that's the many, that the blood of Christ, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, did not make men savable or provide the opportunity for salvation, but it actually saved that select group. And then number three, they'll say the atonement of Christ is limited in reach, not in power. Now, many of them won't necessarily even say this because the Calvinists don't really like the term limited atonement. They like the particular redemption or something that makes it sound a little bit better rather than that it's something that's, that's limited. But the reality is that's the L in TULIP, and so that's what we're going to go with. Uh, but what they will say is that, that we, essentially, if we believe that Christ died for all, but that there's a condition of faith... Right, that we have to obey, that we have to believe God, and then we have to obey. If there's a condition of faith, that we have limited the power of the atonement. Because if God wants to save, then God's going to save. 
If Jesus' death on the cross was enough to provide an atonement for our sins, then it is not subject to anything that we can say yes to or no to or anything like that. That it is powerful enough to save regardless of our position. And so they'll say it's not limited in power. The Calvinist belief in the atonement is that it is powerful enough for everyone that God chose. But the reach is limited that it only reaches to the elect that, go, that God has chosen. And they will accuse those who take the opposite viewpoint of limiting the power of the atonement. Where we might say all have the ability to come to Christ, and therefore we have not limited the reach of the atonement, they will say we limit the power of the atonement because we have put man's choice to accept it as the primary determining factor in our salvation. And therefore, Christ's death must not really be that powerful if it can't bypass man's position on some. So we're going to talk about that. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, they'll use this to show, again, it's many, not all. Who did he die for? He didn't die for the whole world. He died for the church. Now, I love the fact that they use this passage because when you think about the idea of unconditional election and the truth of God's word and and what election is, right, as we talked about yesterday, that God elects to save those that are in Christ, his church, and anybody can be a part of his church and be saved. But that fits exactly with what this verse is saying, doesn't it? That Jesus died for the church. He died for, he gave his life for the church, for all who would be a part of Christ. So it still encompasses that all part of it, but they will try to use this verse to say, see, he only died for the church, not everybody. And they'll they'll try to twist that around to say that. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even we were dead to sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved. God is rich in mercy. He has great love for us, not for everybody, but for us specifically. We were dead in sins, but he has quickened us. He has made us alive by his grace, by Christ. In Christ's atoning sacrifice there, that dead nature that we have that we're born with, that dead in sins, that sinful nature as a part of that atonement, and then what we're going to talk about tomorrow, the irresistible grace, that we can be quickened or regenerated together. But it's for us. It's not for everybody. It's just for Christians. Canons of Dort said the death of the Son of God is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sin and is of infinite worth and value, abundantly sufficient to to expiate the sins of the whole world. And then R.C. Sproul said the atonement's ultimate purpose is found in the ultimate purpose or will of God. This purpose or design does not include the entire human race. If it did, the entire human race would surely be redeemed. And so part of that logical flow that they will take is, right, they're not limiting the power of the atonement. We're supposedly limiting the power of the atonement. But the atonement is so powerful, it will atone for sins. And so if Christ died for the whole human race, then he did atone for the sins of the entire world. And therefore, everyone would be saved. Universalism. Jesus died for all, therefore he saved all. And it gives no room for that middle ground of the condition of faith and obedience to Christ. That's the position it will take. So let's look in the Bible. Let's ask some Bible questions about this doctrine. 
is atonement a biblical concept? First, let's make sure of that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 18 and 19 says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Is atonement a biblical concept? Yes, it is. That is what Jesus came to do on the cross, was to be a substitution for our sin, to atone for our sins. And to atone, or an atonement simply means to make up for, to pay reparations for. It's a payment for something. Jesus came to pay our debt of sin, right? So whether you believe that it was for a small group of individually selected Christians, or you believe that it was for anybody that comes to Christ, regardless of the position you take, atonement itself is a biblical concept. Christ certainly came to atone for our sins. But is atonement limited? Who did Jesus die for? Did he die for everyone or did he die for only a few specific individually selected people? 1 John chapter 2, 1 and 2 says, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only but for the sins of the whole world. Now, I want us to pay attention to a couple of things in this passage. Who's he writing to? He's writing to Christians, my little children. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. He's talking to Christians here about the relationship that we have with Jesus and the fact that our sins have been forgiven. But then he makes a distinction between our sins and also the sins of the whole world. The sins of the whole world there cannot mean just Christians. He's already referenced Christians, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And then he adds on, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, what a Calvinist will say is if we teach that, that means that by necessity, therefore, everyone's saved. And that's certainly not true, and I think we'll show that biblically. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15, and, and that he died for all. That they which live should not henceforth live to themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. And we could go on and on and on. You know, there are all kinds of Bible verses that talk about the great love that God had for the world. John 3 verse 16 that talk about him wanting all men to be saved. There's many, many verses that talk about that. Jesus came to die for all. Not just for those that were unconditionally elected by God. But how do we reconcile that with the Calvinist objection? Does that mean that Christ dying for all means that everyone is saved? If Christ was the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, if he died for everyone, then everyone should theoretically be saved. 1 Timothy 4 verse 10 says, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. What do you think Paul meant here as he's writing to Timothy? And he says, Jesus is the savior of the whole world, but especially of those that believe. That seems seems kind of weird. I mean, he's either the savior or he's not, right? How is he especially the savior to some and not to others? The reality is Jesus came down to be the savior for all men. For anyone who would join his church, for anyone who would obey his gospel and be added to his body and therefore be a part of that elect group, his chosen people, his royal priesthood, his peculiar people, that that holy nation. Anybody can be a part of that. And if we're a part of that, he's our savior. He came to be the savior for all men, for anyone who would accept him. But he is especially our savior, those that believe in him, those that have accepted him. 
we recognize the immense benefits of that saving grace. We recognize the great benefits of that atonement. Where though he is the savior of all men, though he came to provide salvation for all men, for any who would accept him and believe in him and obey him, we that have, we recognize the power of that salvation. We recognize the power of that sacrifice. And I think that that's an important distinction that Paul makes here in this verse. About Jesus' intent to be the savior for all but in the recognition and application of truly being the Savior for those that believe and those that have accepted Him. John 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Notice we talked about unconditional yesterday, but I'll just notice with you that that's a condition in this verse. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the reality is what we see is that Christ coming to be the propitiation for the whole world, Christ coming to be the Savior for all men, does not inherently mean that all men are saved. There's a condition placed on that. And that condition is that we believe, and that we obey through that belief and through that faith, and that we live for Him. And when we do that, we have access to the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is there for everybody. But we have access to it when we believe, when we obey, when we're in Christ. And that's the distinction there, and that's the difference. Could God choose to provide atonement for all? And if he doesn't, does he really love all? 1 John 4, verse 10 says, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What is love, according to this passage? It says, Herein is love. And then he defines what true love is. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent Jesus to die for our sins. He says that is love, that Jesus came to die. Now, if limited atonement is true, Jesus only was sent to die for certain individuals that, individuals that God had chosen regardless of any condition, anything that they had done. And therefore, what that verse is teaching is that God loves the elect those special individuals that he's chosen. And because he did not send his son to be the propitiation for everyone else's sins, we can infer from that that he does not love everyone else if the Calvinist doctrine is true. God loves us because he sent his son to die for us. Therefore, if he did not send his son to die for me, he does not love me. That's the logic. And yet, what do we see in Scripture? Does God love everyone? Does God want the best for everyone? Certainly. 2 Peter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, square that verse with Calvinist philosophy and teaching. If God is not willing that any should perish, and Calvinists teach that God is so sovereign that he will literally do everything that is his will to do, and he will not do anything that is not his will to do, if it's his will that not any should perish, he either saved everyone and everyone's going to heaven, no matter what, or he provided the opportunity for salvation to everyone. Because he loves everyone. And he's not willing that any should perish. But this idea that God is sovereign and only does what he wills means that he only wills for certain people to be saved. Not for everybody. And that's what limited atonement teaches. Is that if you are ha happen to be lucky enough to be one of God's elect, 
Well, Jesus came to die for you. But if not, he didn't. God didn't love you. God didn't send his son for you. God does not want you to be saved, but he wills that you will perish. And in fact, he has designed you for the purpose of condemning you to everlasting hell. That's what we have to believe if limited atonement is true. Should Jesus be preached to everyone if he only died for some? And we mentioned the same type of concept yesterday, but I want to reinforce it today. Romans 1 verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Another condition, it's the same condition, but it's another condition that they must believe. But notice he says, it is for anyone, everyone that believes, they can have access to that, to that gospel that saves. And of course, the gospel being the good news of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why are we sharing that good news with anybody else? It's really not good news for everybody that God didn't pick. It's not good news for everybody that God didn't love enough to send his son to die for. It's not good news for anybody except those that God has unconditionally elected to salvation. And so if we take the Calvinist position, then the gospel is not good news and everyone can't believe it. But the Bible very clearly teaches that everyone can and that Jesus came for all. And that gospel is good news and it's good news to everyone in the world because everyone in the world has the opportunity to hear about the death of Jesus Christ and his burial and his resurrection and to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and to confess His name and repent of their sins and be baptized into His death, having their sins washed away as Jesus was buried in that ground. So we're buried in that water and our sins are washed and we rise up out of that water like Christ rose from the grave, new, and we're saved and our sins are gone. It's been atoned for. It's been substituted for. We have access to the blood of Christ through believing and obeying that gospel. It is God's power to save. Unconditional election isn't the power to save. Limited atonement isn't the power to save. His irresistible grace that we're going to talk about tomorrow isn't the power to save. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that his death is for you and for me and for every other single person if, on the condition that, we believe and we obey him. And thereby, when we put all of these things together, I hope that you can see that the biblical position and the biblical doctrine It is the only one that agrees that you can take all of these verses together and you can meld them together in a way that makes sense and that's beautiful and that's powerful for us. But when we don't and we adhere to what Calvin taught or what this Calvinism teaches, we have to change a lot of definitions, we have to ignore a lot of verses, and we have to exclude a lot of people from the love of God. Let me go back. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11 Paul said knowing therefore the terror of the Lord we persuade men but we are made manifest unto God and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences why were they persuading men if Calvinism is true and men are, and people are unconditionally elected by God then there's no persuasion needed there's no convincing needed We'll talk about it again tomorrow. But if God sends his irresistible grace on someone, his Holy Spirit upon them to regenerate them, to give them faith, to give them obedience, there's no persuasion needed. Why was Paul persuading them? Because men have a free will choice of whether to accept the atoning sacrifice of Jesus or not. Whether to believe that Jesus died for all and all of us can be saved or not. It's our free will choice. That's the gift that God has given us is Christ Jesus dying for all, 
that whoever would believe and obey would be saved. Logical conclusions if limited atonement is true. If it's true, then there are an abundance of verses whose clear teaching regarding the offer of salvation must be completely reinterpreted or redefined. As I mentioned with the concept of world and all, and you have to take all of those verses and explain how that the world and all mean just God's elect. If limited atonement is true, then Christ's death has no significance to an unbeliever. No one can be saved except for those individuals God has already elected. And if it's true, it would make it impossible to genuinely offer salvation to all people, which, of course, we're called to do in evangelism. And if limited atonement is true and God has predestined all things, then God sent Jesus to pay the price for sin that God himself caused humans to commit. Can you tell me if that makes sense? How does it make sense that God would send Jesus to be an atonement for sins that God himself foreordained and predestined would come to pass. I mean, if God predestines everything, why didn't he just predestine that we don't sin? Make, make it all a lot easier. Did Jesus come to die for everybody? I believe that he did. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. I believe limited atonement is absolutely false. And that we need to recognize and appreciate that every single person has the opportunity to come to Christ. Every single person has access to the blood of Christ. If we'll accept him, we'll believe him, we'll obey him. Hebrews 2 verse 9, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Not just for some not just for individuals that God selected, but for everyone. He is my Savior. He's your Savior. He's the Savior of the whole world. If the whole world will, what, will but believe Him and obey Him. This morning we're about to offer an invitation. If you're here and you're not in Christ, Christ is where you need to be. Because in Christ is how you know you're one of the elect. If you're in Christ, that's how you know you have salvation. If you're in Christ, that's how you know God's going to save you. And the great blessing is that God offers everyone the ability to become a part of his church, to be part of the elect. He offered his son Jesus to die for everyone. And if you need access to that atonement today, we encourage you to come. And if you're here and you're a Christian, maybe you've struggled in some way and would like to request the prayers of the church, we also want to help you. If you'll come, sit on the front pew as we stand and sing.